Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a serious XM podcast available everywhere. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It is a story that shocked the country, and it quickly became a symbol of all that was wrong with Toronto and with the justice system in general. A 16-year-old boy was killed in what police are calling an unprovoked attack. A memorial is growing here at Kiel Station. People have been stopping by all day. Emotions are running high as advocates once again call for a safe and reliable transit system. A young man killed, allegedly murdered by a 22-year-old man who we quickly learned had a lengthy criminal history, who had, in fact, been released from custody just a couple of weeks before the alleged attack. It is understandable as Toronto and the country beyond wrestled with anger and fear, that the gut reaction was to toughen sentencing, to reform the bail system, to do whatever it took to keep people like the accused killer locked up. And then something remarkable happened. The mother of the victim, clearly full of grief and pain, sat down in front of CBC cameras and said the opposite. We need to start talking about violence, the root causes of violence. I know it comes down to the social determinants of health. It's not an easy solution. We're not talking about adding more police force. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about locking people up. We're talking about What are the root causes? Why is this happening? Why is a person homeless? So who is the alleged killer who has become a symbol of everything wrong both with the justice system and the social support or lack of it in our healthcare system? What do we know about this man's background, his previous crimes, whether or not he tried to get help and what was missed and when? Is there a world where this didn't have to happen? And how do we get to that world from here? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jennifer Pagliaro is a crime reporter with the Toronto Star. Hey, Jen. Hey. I don't usually do this, but I want to start with us talking a little bit of inside journalism baseball, because who was the person who allegedly killed a 16-year-old and you try to retrace those pieces? Like, what do you do and where do you start to build that picture? Yeah, so it's difficult in Canada because there aren't a lot of publicly available documents that 
exist in some database online. And I think it's important that people sort of understand where these stories come from. So I can't just look someone up. Uh, in the States, there's a lot of things you can search online for a stranger. And in Canada, we don't really have that. So the first place I started is I sort of took a guess as to uh, which courthouse I thought he may have previous charges at. That was sort of an educated guess given the very little details we knew about his circumstances. The police press release suggested that he was of no fixed address. That's usually like a little flag that that person might be experiencing homelessness. Hmm. And I know that those people often are looking for services that are uh, more readily available in the downtown, especially downtown East. And the courthouse that someone might wind up at if they're charged in that general area is at Old City Hall, uh, right downtown. Right. And it took two reporters driving around to various courthouses to try to actually pull physical records and then try to piece together a timeline of what is a very complex and lengthy criminal history. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say with like minimal to almost no help from the ministry that oversees uh, courts in Ontario. And I think that's a I think that's a problem. And I don't think it should have required that amount of resources. Um, these are publicly available documents, but they are not. I would say, easily or readily available. Yes, and we'll get into just how lengthy uh, the criminal history is and uh, all the places that you had to go to to track this down. But maybe first, just tell us about the last time before uh, the incident we're going to talk about today that the alleged killer, Jordan O'Brien Tobin, was in court. Why was he in court and what happened there? Yeah, so this was a key document that we wanted to unravel. Uh, We ended up getting a transcript for a court appearance that he made uh, just two weeks before uh, the alleged murder. And at that time, he was facing sentencing for a historical sexual assault charge that happened in October of 2021. And so he was appearing before a judge. Um, He had pled guilty to that charge. And all that was left to do was to be sentenced by the judge. Mm -hmm. And so we got a transcript of that appearance. And it was the only time that I was able to find that O'Brien Tobin actually spoke to the judge. And he talked about wanting to turn his life around. He talked about his many addictions, about being homeless, uh, about needing financial and other supports, including wanting to go to uh, potentially a rehab treatment program. And he talked about being young. He's he's only 22 years old, uh, that he didn't want to spend his life in jail. And um, he sort of uh, pleaded for um, some modicum of mercy from the judge. And again, that was just two weeks um, before this alleged murder. And so that was really crucial for us to to see sort of where he was at in the criminal justice system, but also his state of mind at this point. And what happened right after that? He was released? So because he had already served some time in 
jail and in custody, you get, as any adult would in Ontario's criminal justice system, you get credit for time served ahead of your sentencing. Mm -hmm. That's time that you are technically presumed innocent until proven guilty. And so you actually, there's like a formula they do, you actually get extra credit for spending that time in custody ahead of a sentencing. So because he had already spent like a significant amount of time. He was sentenced to uh, just a single day in custody uh, additionally, and then he was released on probation. We're going to talk a lot about O'Brien Tobin uh, on this show and and how he ended up uh, where he did and, and doing what he allegedly did. Before we do that, People are familiar with this incident, even uh, people outside of Toronto, because it was shocking and it made headlines around the country. Um, 16-year-old boy killed uh, at a TTC station. But just tell us a little bit before we begin about about Gabriel and um, who he was and, and what we know about him and his life. Yeah, so this was, you know, a young man living in Toronto uh, with a family who really loved him. His mother described my colleague at the Star that, you know, he was adventurous. He loved snowboarding. He would sort of help her on the slopes. Like he was really proficient at it. You know, he, he, he like a, like your average 16 year old, he had dreams for his future. Mm. And I think that's the part that's really devastating is that as far as we understand from what has been made publicly available, he was just on his way home with a friend um, sitting on a bench at a subway station that he was familiar with when he was approached and in this unprovoked uh, attack allegedly stabbed to death. And it, it's really hard to wrap your head around. Um, I actually think his parents have, I'm sort of in awe of the way that they have handled this publicly. Um, his mom especially had said some really compassionate things about challenges with the mental health system and mm -hmm. it needing to be overhauled um, in the wake of losing her son so violently. Um, I think that really speaks a lot. Um, to his family and their character. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you about this, and I'm sure one of the reasons that you wrote this piece and did this work, is because this case itself has become a kind of political flashpoint uh, for conversation around the justice system, whether it is more mental health resources, whether it is stricter sentencing and bail reform and all of that stuff. And what you guys did was paint a picture of O'Brien Tobin that is really full and, and allows us to kind of have the discussion of where this alleged killing could have been stopped before it happened. So maybe, maybe first, just start with uh, what you found out about his background. Where is O'Brien Tobin from? What has his life been like? And, and how did he end up with no fixed address uh, in downtown Toronto? Yeah. And, and thank you for saying that. That was really the goal is to try to like shed some light and make sure everyone had all of the facts in front of them. So uh, what we've learned is that Jordan O'Brien Tobin was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, and he had what I would describe as a fairly traumatic childhood. We haven't gotten into too many details just to try to protect the privacy of the people involved, but mm -hmm. we know that he was a victim of abuse and witness to familial abuse as a young child. And it 
developed uh, into quite a few challenging uh, psychiatric diagnosis. Even at a young age, he was being monitored um, by social workers and psychiatrists. At a certain point, um, he was removed from his home and he spent um, from the time he was 11 to the time he was 17 in a group home. Hmm. From the time he was an adult at the age of 18, and again, he's relatively young, he's only 22, he spent almost every year of his adult life so far involved in the criminal justice system, starting with charges in Newfoundland, which we were able to obtain from the provincial court there. Things like uh, theft from, you know, grocery stores and pharmacies and restaurants and liquor stores. And at a certain point in uh, 2019-2020, like a lot of young people, I think, from uh, smaller uh, places decided he wanted to come to Ontario uh, to look for work, was hoping to start a new life. And unfortunately, when he arrived, the pandemic hit. And uh, from the records, it seems as though he had a lot of difficulty finding any um, stability, uh, either through work or housing. Listeners uh, who live here in the GTA know that housing can be incredibly difficult uh, at the best of times. And so what we can see from the addresses that get listed on his criminal charges is that He really bounced from shelter to shelter, and at times uh, police listed him as no fixed address. It seems like he never really found any kind of stable housing, Um, and his list of charges continues uh, when he gets to Ontario, and uh, some become increasingly violent, uh, mixed with, again, alleged thefts and um, other, uh, I would say, uh, less violent charges. Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a serious XM podcast available everywhere. When you spoke to experts on the justice system and how it works and you show them this list of charges um, and addresses or non-addresses, you know, is this story unique? Like what should be happening in these situations that isn't or is this just the way it works? Yeah, so unfortunately his backstory and sort of what's spooled out in terms of his criminal record Uh, these experts say is not unique, with the exception that it is thankfully still very rare for someone to be randomly attacked and killed, uh, especially someone so young. But the lead up to that is a really familiar picture to some of the the legal experts that we spoke to. And these are folks that spend a lot of time in this space of the intersection of mental health and criminal justice, because unfortunately, you know, it's important to say that not everyone that's experiencing mental health challenges commits a violent offense. In fact, very rarely do people with mental health um, challenges commit violent offenses. But Mm -hmm. when those two things intersect, it can be incredibly challenging. Um, And there's a lot of sort of red flags here that the experts say are incredibly common. But unfortunately, the system, uh, it seems in Ontario, is not set up to help people like Jordan O'Brien Tobin. How could it be set up? to do that. Like, and I'm not asking you to, you know, rework the whole system here on the podcast, but like, 
where was there an opportunity to get off this track that we don't have? And and I say that in either scenario, uh, in terms of either, you know, figure out how to find support and stability or determine that he was a danger and lock him up. Yeah. So looking through his history and trying to understand what happened, to me, the real gaps are on the mental health supports side. When you look at his criminal history, you have to remember that I have the benefit and now we have the benefit of looking at it in its entirety. But if you are a member or like officer of the legal system, you know, a judge, a duty counsel, the crown, they have access obviously to his previous charges, but you are sort of looking at it in isolation in the sense that never did the offenses that uh, O'Brien Tobin was alleged to have committed, you know, rose to even the seriousness that they were taken to, for example, Ontario's Superior Court that deals with these more serious offenses that come with more lengthy sentences. For the most part, you know, the um, most serious of charges were O'Brien Tobin threatening someone with an edged weapon um, until the alleged murder, he had never actually used an edged weapon on anyone from what we could see. And it's not that that is not a serious event. Obviously, you or I and people we know, this is not how you conduct yourselves. But you have to look at it in the sense of, you know, what is the appropriate sentence for something like that? He was spending a lot of time in custody as mm-hmm. a result of, you know, the the many offenses that he was racking up. But every time he would go into custody, it seems to me from reading the transcripts that there weren't exactly supports available in provincial custody, you know, while he was awaiting sentencing. And when he was released, there wasn't a clear plan for how he was to receive treatment. Often his probation order would say that he had to seek treatment. But as an adult with a probation officer who has a multitude of cases that they are responsible for, it's not like your probation officer shows up at your house to drive you to the hospital or to your program. Like as an adult offender, there's still some expectation that you walk yourself in the front door. And for someone who is experiencing homelessness, who has declared um, themselves a really large range of psychiatric um, concerns as well as addictions, that's not as easy as it sounds. And again, I don't I don't have the answer for what a better system looks like, but I, I know that this was someone who clearly needed supports and at times was asking for those supports. And it seems to me like in Toronto, those supports should be available, but they often aren't. How has this case become um, an example for the other side of that equation in terms of uh, bail reform? Yeah, so it's been really interesting. Like you mentioned, this case kind of became a flashpoint. um, And where there are very public cases like this, um, sometimes politicians latch on to them as an example, um, they think, to prove their point. And something that I really wanted to focus on in writing this story is, you know, whether a case like this does prove their point. I'm not going to say whether like bail reform is a good or bad idea, but it is interesting to me whether, you know, the example they're using has anything to do with the argument that they're making. And what's interesting is that 
much of the bail reform that's being discussed right now um, amongst politicians and in the public is for people who are charged for having a loaded firearm. Hmm. And, you know, that never appears in the criminal record for O'Brien Tobin. Like I said, he um, at times is charged with assaulting different people and threatening them with an edged weapon, but never is he charged for wielding a firearm on anyone. And so the kind of bail reform that's being discussed right now actually doesn't apply to this particular criminal history. And it's not to say that the idea of bail reform can't apply to this case, but the way that we are talking about it doesn't apply to this case. And I think it's important to talk about that because I think there's a lot of rhetoric about um, making sure that dangerous offenders are locked up, but I'm not sure that anyone in the legal system would have necessarily declared someone like Jordan O'Brien Tobin a dangerous offender, you know, at the time, obviously looking back at it in hindsight and the alleged murder, you might make a different opinion, but at the time, obviously people who make legal decisions don't have that hindsight. I'm not sure they would have classified him that way. And so I think it's important to say all that because I'm not sure that bail reform would have helped here. Now that you finished this story, and I'm sure there's uh, more to come on this as uh, the criminal case proceeds, but I want to ask you, you know, what is your takeaway from reporting all of this out? I obviously don't want to minimize Gabriel's death in any way because it's a tragedy. But when I read your whole story, I came away just profoundly sad about everything and everyone involved. And I'm wondering, you know, how you feel when you dig through this. Yeah, I felt that way too. You know, in the way that you've kind of said, I didn't want to lose sight of Gabriel and his family and what they're going through. But I also sort of use that as motivation to try to understand, like, where did we go wrong here? And uh, my colleagues and I are also looking at some of the other attacks that have occurred. And I think we'll find some common themes there. And my concern is that one of the common denominators is unchecked mental illness and a lack of supports in the community and also in custody. And again, it's not to say that everyone with mental illness um, is violent. It's the opposite. Mostly people with mental illness have violence committed against them. But in these instances where it does happen, it seems to me that there is a clear problem of just not providing mental health care in the way that we would hope in a country that we are proud of our healthcare system. However, I still think we are not treating mental illness the way that we treat physical ailments. And I think that that is having an ongoing and frustrating effect. Maybe lastly, because you've mentioned it and you touched on it off the top, what has Gabriel's family said about everything that's happened? Um, what are they calling for and how are they uh, trying to honor his memory? Because it, it plays into exactly what you've described. Yeah, the thing that really um, struck me initially about this story before I really became intimately involved is that uh, Gabriel's mother, who works in the healthcare system, had some very poignant things to say about what she saw as a lack of support in the mental health space. And as someone 
works in that field, I'm sure she's been exposed to the outcome of a system full of gaps. And now uh, it seems that it has contributed to, uh, you know, allegedly the loss of her son. And to be able to speak, I think, so eloquently about that, um, even as she's grieving, I think that we owe it to her and to Gabriel and to his memory to pay attention to what she's saying. I think it holds a lot of weight. And I think that she's right. Everything that I have seen is that we lack the supports that people so desperately need in this city and the greater region. And if a grieving mother can be so poignant in realizing that and pointing it out, then I think we owe it to her to pay more attention. Jennifer, thank you for this. Thank you for uh, all the work that you're doing. And I guess uh, we'll touch base later and see if this case, which has gathered headlines around the country, um, can give us a push in that direction, maybe. Thanks so much for having me. Jennifer Pagliaro reporting for the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us anytime at thebigstoryfpn on Twitter or by email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you've got a comment or a question about this episode or any other, we received some great feedback on our Tiny Homes episode from last week. I responded to a bunch of it. It is fantastic when a discussion of an issue like that can bring people together from across the spectrum. You can always reach out to us. We read every single email. We listen to every single voicemail, which you can, by the way, leave by calling 416-935-5935. And all feedback, good and bad, is really appreciated. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a Sirius XM podcast available everywhere.